Hello and welcome to this episode of Superhero Ethics. Today we are talking about The Last of Us, episodes one through four, with myself, Aaron McGowan, and Danielle of Written in the Star Wars. We're not going to do episode by episode coverage, but every now and then we're going to check in on the show, which is raising so many great questions, doing so much, so many interesting things with a genre of post-apocalyptic and zombie TV, uh, and just have some great discussions that it's raising. So I'm really excited for this episode, and we'll get into all that right after this commercial break. We have no control over, but if it's for any kind of flower-based product, be careful. Welcome back. My name is Matthew, your host. And to introduce my first guest, I can tell kind of a funny story because... Danielle, written in the Star Wars, has been on the Andor podcast a bunch of times, has talked with me about some other Star Wars stuff. And then recently, her Twitter and her TikTok, there started to be a lot of references to TLOU and Pedro Pascal and a video game. And I had no idea what was going on because I live under a rock. Uh, and when I finally figured out, I, I realized how excited she was about this show uh, and that she'd played the video game. And I knew that if I wanted to talk about the show, I definitely needed to get her on. So one episode of the show and immediately was like absolutely hooked. And so having learned what is necessary in order to survive the apocalypse from these wonderful characters, Danielle, let me start by asking you, if you have a crush on a D&D player, what's the best thing you should do? Is this a bad time? You should time? ask them. <laughs> what, what was it? I was going to say, is this a bad time to say I don't play D&D? <laughs> oh, no, it doesn't matter because it, it, the, the answer is you ask them for a D8. <laughs> when, when the show went to bad puns i was just like i'm here for it this makes me so happy so danielle go ahead and introduce yourself hi i'm danielle written in the star wars on tiktok danielle's 394 on twitter and my pronouns are she her and i'm very excited to be here because i love the last of us <laughs> awesome so in the happy accents of scheduling myself danielle and aaron mcgowan who's been my regular co-host Earlier today, we did an episode on the most recent episodes of The Bad Batch, and because I had scheduled this double block of time with Danielle to do this and The Last of Us, Aaron got the invitation for all of it and said, oh, hey, wait, I'm really into The Last of Us too. Can I join? Which I said, of course, because I love their perspective so much. So, Aaron, say hello and introduce yourself. Um, hi, I'm Aaron. Um, Lady Tano Creates on Instagram and TikTok, and... My pronouns are she, her. Um, the Last of Us kind of snuck up on me. Um, I mean, like, it didn't, but it did. So I had seen the posters and all the trailers with Pedro Pascal and Bella Ramsey. And when the first episode came out, I was like, "Yeah, I'm not emotionally ready for this. Like, I don't know if I can do this. Um, I recently did the same thing with the new Avatar movie. I avoided it for so long because of how deeply emotional movies make me and I get so emotionally involved with all of this so I was scared to even watch it um and then I saw the invite and I texted Matthew what does TLOU stand for and they were like oh the last of us and I said oh I gotta watch mm -hmm. it so then I binged the first four episodes and I loved it it's not as bad emotionally as I thought it would be and I didn't know much going in but I knew Danielle and I knew it was a game being turned into a show I've had kind of a similar uh, reaction to you, Aaron, and I didn't know much about it. I knew post-apocalyptic zombies, which always raises some interesting ethical questions. 
And the first two episodes were, okay, here's some interesting stuff. I like where they're going. Pedro Pascal is amazing. Bella Ramsey, without a British accent, is breaking my brain, but is very good. And then the third episode gave me probably in the top 10 hours of queer media that I've ever seen in my life. And we'll definitely talk about why that was so important. And then episode four just hit me again and again and again. And so, yeah, there was so much here to talk about. And Delia, let me just start with this. Because like I said, you were you were going ham on this game and this movie, on this TV show. I got there eventually, long before it came out. What was it about the story of the game that so spoke to you? And, and what how, how was the show, like, wh- why was it that you were so excited for this? And how is the show reaching or not reaching that levels of excitement you had? So I have to give a warning. I might start crying. <laughs> this story is my favorite story, period. Uh, not just video game, not just, mm-hmm. you know, uh, TV show now. It's my favorite story. And I started playing it in 2020, so COVID. And um, it was just kind of a thing that was really there for me at a really hard time. And I've just played straight through it, became really, really attached to Joel as a father figure. And mm-hmm. I've made jokes on social media about how I love Pedro Pascal and I usually thirst over Pedro Pascal characters, but Joel, no, like that's, that's my father. Um, and I think a part of that was, I've talked a little bit about this on social media. Part of that is that Joel is from Texas. He's a Southern man and he actively cares about his queer daughter <laughs> and like, and not just in a, like a, a pretended away kind of thing, which I think a lot of people who maybe grew up in the South are used to, which is like, Oh, if we don't talk about it, it's not there. Um, you know, we can just, you know, not talk about it at all. Right. And Joel's not that way, even though he may be a little ignorant at times about like, you know, if in the games, at least he's never hurtful and he's always actively like, supportive of Ellie, not just in her queerness, but in who she is as a person. And, Mm -hmm. um, I love my parents, (laughs) but they, Joel fills a gap, I guess, for that for me. And I don't want it to seem like that's the only reason, even though I do think that's enough of a reason, but it's just, the story is so well told. It's such a good narrative. And it stays that way consistently. And I won't give spoilers for part two, obviously, because neither of you know about that, but the narrative choices in part two are some of the best and like most risky narrative choices I've ever seen a story take. And it pays off Mm -hmm. so well. And it just shows a real trust in the material and a real trust in the story itself for Mm. the creators to believe that they could do this. And get away with it essentially and tell a good story. And, and it does. And I just think that that kind of creativity doesn't come around very often. And I am so happy to see that the adaptation has followed in those footsteps because we'll talk about this more, I'm sure, but there've been changes to the way the story and that in itself is a risk. And I think that it wouldn't be the last of us if they weren't taking risks (laughs) in adaptation. So I'm very pleased with where it's come so far. It's exceeded my expectations, truly. Yeah. And I'm so happy with that. I think I've been seeing that because we've been doing a weird thing where my spouse had played through the whole game, Mary, 
I had not. We debated if we should play the game before watching it or not, and instead decided to kind of like play a chapter or two from the game and then watch the because the TV show is pretty closely mirroring the narrative of the story. Uh, Fire, the new Fire Emblem game is out now, which my partner and I are both super obsessed with. So I think Last of Us, unfortunately, game playing is going to fall off the tracks. But part of that is, and I'm curious for people who only watched the show, if how this was for you. I got to play the first chapter of the game or watch Mary play before I played it, before I saw it. And so for me to really connect with Joel's actual daughter character, and I knew that this was very much a like father-daughter story. And so I thought this is going to be our main character going forward. And then to have her be killed was such a gut punch to me in the game. And it made me wonder... When I then watched the show, I realized all the marketing has been about Bella Ramsey, who the girl playing his, his biological daughter clearly isn't. And I, I'm curious like, if it had less of an impact for those folks because they were like, well, we know this isn't Bella Ramsey or whatever. But I, in the game, at least, to me, that was a, like, oh, this is not your traditional game. This is not – to me, what it said was, yes, you're going to have some fun shooting zombies, but mostly shooting zombies is just a way for us to tell you this incredible story. For me, I didn't see it coming at all. Like, that part slapped me in the face. I had heard so much about the actress who played Sarah and how well she portrayed the character. And I knew she wasn't the Bella Ramsey character, but I thought, okay, cool. You know, she knows her stuff and she'd be around for a bit. And then, like, 20 minutes later, I was mm -hmm. like, oh, <laughs> they killed her off. Like, I was yeah. not expecting that. Yeah, I've been wondering that, too, because I have seen some people who played the game say that they wish that they hadn't so they could experience the show fresh but mm -hmm. and i can see the appeal to that i really can but i think that i'm at the place where the game itself means so much to me and nothing can take that away like that the game can mean a lot to me and the show can mean just as much to me um but the game means so much to me that i'm glad i experienced it first because i do feel like the show has made some better narrative choices with specific storylines that i feel like mm -hmm. if i watched the show first and then played the game i might be a little disappointed <laughs> in some of the choices yeah. um and i would hate for that to happen for me personally because the game means so much but yeah i'm always interested to see what people who haven't played the game what their yeah. thoughts are about it yeah and that's been for me like we're now like I said, I want to keep playing it through, but I feel like the the show is just going into so much more depth in everything from that initial conversation of the two scientists where the, the introducing the whole idea of what fungus can do to the whole Bill and Frank thing being so much more drawn out to it, – it's kind of fun watching it with, with my partner because she's able to go like, oh, the magazine conversation in the Jeep – that's word for word from the game. Or like I've seen her play through the hotel so I can see that the sets are so painstakingly perfect, but then they're adding so much more. Um, and in some ways I'm finding at least, and I'm curious how this is for you, the game is so much more violent because it's more the playability, of course. Yeah. But I find that cutting that way back means that the, the few people you do wind up seeing get killed in the show, it has so much more impact. Yeah, and I think it's, like you said, it's like it's a necessity of gameplay that you have mm -hmm. a lot more of kind of like unquestioned violence. Um, that's something that part two plays with a lot. 
the questionability of violence in gameplay. And, um, and so, but in part one, it's just like, yeah, this is a zombie game and like, you got to shoot, you know, you got to shoot these zombies, got to shoot these people, not really thinking about it all that much and how it might affect someone. But the show, you can't, you can't have that and have it be meaningful I guess because you don't have cutscenes, like you don't have a, a shootout yeah. and then a cutscene to a really emotional moment and then a shootout again. It's all like one thread, and you have to incorporate the ethics of uh, ethics and the morality of killing someone in this post-apocalyptic world into that exact situation. And I think they've done that so well. Yeah, I really see that. I think it especially came through in episode four where. Because I remember when playing through the game with Mary, one of the first things I was struck by was that in the first couple of chapters, you're killing a lot more humans than you are zombies. And it's interesting. It's like, yeah, it's a pretty common idea that post-apocalyptic is dog-eat-dog and we're all out against each other. And there was a little bit of that in the, sh- in the show. But the fact that there was so little, I thought – we're bouncing around a bit here, but maybe there's a good way to get into, into this part of it. Episode four to me is so good in so many ways, the puns, the connection – but I felt like that was the episode where we really had to wrestle with to survive in this world. Most of us are not getting the Bill and Frank story. Yeah. We're having to kill other humans. And so for Bella to have her first kill in that situation, or at least the first kill we saw, she says she's killed others. Uh, how did that scene play out for you? Aaron, I'm especially curious for you. Like, What was your take on, on, on watching that scene of them having to getting attacked by and killing other people? Yeah. Um... I mean, like, I didn't see it coming. Like, I could see it coming because, obviously, Joel just talked about it and the post-apocalyptic world and how everyone's out for each other. But as they were just driving through the city, that's not what I thought would happen at all. I thought they would just be lost in the city and then pop out on the wrong side Mm -hmm. of town and be further away from Wyoming and then have to deal with that and then when the guy ran out and was like, help me, help me, I was like, oh, okay, run him over and turn around. And then there was gunfire. And I was like, oh. Yeah. Okay. This is an assault. <laughs> like, this is a planned assault. I liked that Joel actively was saying to um, Ellie, like, it's okay, we're safe, we're safe throughout the journey, even though they're not. And he tells her, you know, they won't hit you, they won't hit you, run to the hole, like, hide in the wall and don't come out until I say. And then he doesn't hear somebody ambush him, and she sees this happening, or hears it happening, and she has a gun, and she knows she can go out and save him, and she does. And I liked the moment when she Mm -hmm. didn't kill him, but Joel is so protective of her that even when this guy was screaming about killing them, he was just screaming about how they deserve it. He takes the time to ask her to go behind the wall because she's still a kid. I mean, she's never seen an airplane. She didn't know what a grassy hill looked like. Like, a car just blew her mind. She's so naive while being so cynical and worldly at the same time. She knows how bad the world is, and she knows that there's not much hope. But she's still affected by, oh, they really killed a bunch of innocent people. How they executed a baby. I'd like to continue to see how this, these kind of things affect her and see how Joel tries to shelter her from it. I'm curious to see where it goes, you know, if he eventually starts to trust her, if he's going to include her, you know, in their plans, start to trust and rely on her more. 
Or even if he's just, like, doing everything that's possible to protect her and goes in completely off opposite direction. I'm just happy and interested to see where it's going to go. Yeah, I think that his... Well, I think the way that Joel handles Ellie's... Like, the way that she's been forced into this unfair world, like he says in episode four, it's not fair that someone your age has to experience this. Um, in, in the way that he does this in the show is so much better <laughs> than in the game. I find show Joel to be much more open. And I think that that is very important. He's open to a certain extent and then he closes off and game Joel is like that, but it takes him a little while to get there. And I think that it shows his reactions in, in these instances really show the benefit, a kind of a perspective. I say this a lot when I talk about adaptations of material, uh, is that The Last of Us Part One, we have to remember, was made 10 years ago. That's when, it was, that's when it was released. So it was likely the story was written, you know, at least like 12 years before, 12 years ago. And Neil Druckmann was new to this. Uh, it's one of the first things that he wrote, one of his first games. And uh, he's had 12 years to think about this. And I imagine that there are things that he wish he had done differently in the game or things that now looking back at it as a father himself is kind of like, I, I think I want to change this up a little bit. And I think this show has allowed him to do that in such yeah. a, a beautiful and natural way because adaptations aren't meant to be copies. And so it's expected that you're going to change some stuff. And the fact that he's taking the time to change Joel's um, responses to Ellie is really important because the father-daughter relationship can be at risk of being overdone in media, I think. Mm -hmm. What's different is how that's portrayed. Is Joel just going to be this overprotective, gruff father figure, or is he going to be someone that Ellie can really open up to? And right. I like that they've taken that, and it's really seen in the scene where she, she doesn't kill that man, but she shoots him. And he's, even if he hadn't died he's paralyzed for life <laughs> like yeah. shot him in the spine he can't feel his legs um and in a post-apocalyptic world what does that look like for someone who just got shot that way and joel can see throughout the next several minutes of their scene can see that she's not handling this well and yeah. instead of ignoring that and instead of just asking her once if she wants to talk about it and then letting her not talk about it he really pushes for it and mm -hmm. I loved that aspect of their relationship. Yeah, it hits so hard. And it's funny. After the third episode, I was like, oh, oh God, we got to talk to Danielle about it. And we had something actually scheduled. I made a schedule snafu. So now it turns out we're only going to – we're talking now. And while we have so much to say about the third episode, because I think it does tie into this, I am so glad we got to this point. Because I do think this was the episode where there really was that breakthrough because between the two of them. And I think, yeah, the way it was portrayed as – First of all, knowing his history, I think he does have this very sort of like gruff, you, you know, it's every person for himself. You maybe make one or two connections. We don't connect with other people. And so there's that aspect. But also he had a daughter who died. Like this is a person who, of course, the last thing he wants is to get connected to this girl who may also die. Because I, I think... I don't fault him for wanting to have those emotional walls up and seeing the way they come down and that it is it's after he sees that she has gone through the horrible. You know, I think the fact that 
A, she's able to literally save his life, which he has guilt about, but, but he sees she can handle herself in this world, and she gets this world. For me, at least, I think that's a big part of what allows him to start to lower those walls, both because he's like, you're already a little broken like me and I want to protect you, but also knowing you're a little bit broken already means, A, there's a better chance you're going to survive, and so I can connect with you, but also there's a better chance you can get me and I can get you. Yeah, I think she became more real to him in that moment, maybe. He was able to distance her a little bit more until that happened. And then he realized, okay, yeah, she is my my partner in this now. Tess isn't here. Mm -hmm. It's just me and her. Well, and let's talk about the the ethical conundrum that doesn't bark, to uh, horribly paraphrase uh, Sherlock Holmes here. Because, yeah, he kills that uh, we shoot that person who immediately does this huge, like, you know, 180 of he was trying to kill them before and now he's like oh my god I'm so sorry please don't kill me please don't kill me I'm so sorry I'm so sorry which it, it didn't feel insincere to me it felt incredibly heartfelt I was incredibly moved by it and it was you know we just had this conversation around Bad Batch where there's so many parallels to you know Omega and, and um, uh, uh, Ellie if nothing else but also there we were talking about like how e- you know, you're part of a group you're part of an army you're part of a gang you do what they tell you He's been trained all his life that these are the people who are threatening him, and so he has to fight against them. And we see how deep that runs in the whole community. But now that he's lost, he's so he's pleading for his life. He's begging for his mom. And I was really struck by the fact, but I but I didn't mind it. I liked it that when she gets upset, you know, there's a she's upset, and he, he uh, Joel kills the guy so that she doesn't have to, and they never mention that. Mm-hmm. And a part of me was thinking, is that going to be what she's upset about, that she thinks maybe we didn't have to kill him? And I kind of really love that actually that isn't ever questioned, that that's just accepted as this is horrible and terrible and in better circumstances maybe we shouldn't have. And I think we from a happily non-post-apocalyptic, well, by some definitions, but not as clearly a pande- uh, apocalyptic situation, like it's easy for me to morally sit back and say – no, of course you should save that guy's life. You should get him to his mom. You should do what you can. But I totally understand why they both felt like that was a necessary thing in that world. And I kind of love that the show doesn't question that, that the questioning is about her having to, to kill him to begin with. But the fact that they let this guy die while he's screaming, for, they kill him while he's screaming for his mom, that's not really an issue. Yeah, I mean, I kind of, well, to me, to disagree in a friendly way, it didn't play as sincere right away like of course a dying man is gonna say mm. anything for you to not kill him i was sitting there like does he even have a mom or is he just trying to pull sympathy from joel is he trying to pull sympathy from ellie like there's no way you can trust this guy he's telling him yeah, he's telling them, i'll go back and tell everyone you're okay even if he goes and tells them you're okay which he probably won't his people are probably just gonna kill you anyway i think that both of those are really interesting perspectives. And I think that what what I think of most with this scene with Joel killing this man is that we don't see him do it. And um, it's done and over with very quickly. And that is such a big difference from the last time we saw him kill someone, which was in episode one. Uh, and he... Um, beats to a pulp <laughs> this uh the Fedra officer because he's thinking of Sarah and how he couldn't protect mm-hmm. Sarah and 
I think there are two side like there's one side to Joel that I think that the series will probably continue to explore and that's his his need for well maybe not his need but he does have a vengeful side he does have this anger that can come out and can do horrible things horrible unnecessary things and mm that's shown with the Fedra officer because he didn't really need to kill him that way. I'm pretty sure the guy was already dead when he was still beating up on him. But the difference between those deaths, I think is very important because we do see him do yeah. this and we do see that anger in him. And we continue to go back to the hand, the, the knuckles that are still injured from, from that whole fiasco. <laughs> and then this death that we see now, mm -hmm. which we don't actually see him do and right. he doesn't string it out. So yeah, I I agree that he has this really angry and vengeful side, and I think that's very powerful mm -hmm. that this was not a random Fedra agent. This is the guy that he would smuggle yeah. pills yeah. for. This is the guy who would tell him when and when not to be on the street, like kind of your buddy. But the moment it parallels the situation with Sarah, he just, Joel flips. And it's interesting because I, I hadn't really put this together, but... There is a way in which this situation also mirrored that in that, you know, Joel fights against the two people who he knows and he takes them down. But he, as he says, he doesn't hear this third guy. And it's because of his his failure in that, that this guy almost kills him, which forces Ellie to have to come out and, and shoot him. And so there is a parallel there of, again, he has made a mistake and it, it, like I don't think anyone except maybe the most super spy, super spy person could have not done what he did there. It's a very hard situation. But still, in his mind, he screwed up and the the girl he's taking care of was harmed because of it. And so that makes it even more powerful that he's able to not make this a, you know, I'm going to take out all my emotions on this. It's just a, OK, I'm just going to make this queen, clean, quick. This guy's not going to suffer anymore. He's going to get killed. Uh, and Ellie's not going to have to deal with suffering anymore and just move on. And he apologizes to her. That was a huge thing for yeah. me. We we so rarely see parental figures in real life and in media apologize to children when children deserve to be apologized to. Children are humans too. And if you do something that you shouldn't have that resulted in harm to them in some way, emotional, physical, whatever, you should apologize. And we get that so rarely, like I said. And so to see Joel actually apologize which doesn't happen in the game uh was huge for me like i start i was crying i didn't even realize it i was like oh that's so nice he apologized yeah. and i'm like oh there's tears streaming down my face but i really liked that addition no as, as someone who's been working with a therapist for 10 years to figure out some way to get my father to say the words i'm sorry um <laughs> yeah. like it's yeah. not just emotional masochism with these shows it's therapy for us <laughs> um my yeah. insurance needs to pay my hbo max bill um <laughs> And I want to use this to – we're going to kind of jump around a little bit here, but I think that there's so much of the, about all these episodes to talk about. But I think one – to me, episode four does not pay off anywhere near as well if it's not set up by episode three. And so I think this is kind of a good, a good time to talk about episode three. Um, and I have so much to say about it, especially how it pays off to here. But let me just start with you all um, uh, and starting, Danielle, with you as someone who had played out the Bill and Frank storyline – in which case, it, 
as someone who'd played out Bill and Frank's story in the game, where he's referred to as a partner and like it could be a queer partner, it could be a business partner. It's a very negative story of, of a relationship that's gone sour. Um, how did this strike you, seeing this very big deviation from the story and an episode that has... If you want to talk about a a thing that people would call a filler episode, though clearly it's not, at least not... it, it Well, or it's all the things I love about filler. Anyway... Uh, too much setup. Danielle, go ahead and talk about the episode. How was it for you? Um, very emotional. I got to watch a screener for it, so I watched it three days before it came out, and that was one of the hardest things I've had to sit on <laughs> because it was in a different way than the first two episodes. There was so much I wanted to talk about and so much I needed to unpack about it and really just kind of deal with in my head. And to have to sit on that for three days and not be able to talk to anyone about it was really, really hard because, you know, we process things by talking about them with each other. And my first thought for this episode was I literally walked out and said to my boyfriend, I'm a shell (laughs) of the person I used to be (laughs) because that's how hard it hit. Like, I don't know that there's ever been anything that has hit me as emotionally and so quickly as episode three of The Last of Us. And... I spent a lot of time trying to think about like why that was. And first, obviously, it's a much better story for Bill and Frank than the game. And is it okay if I give game spoilers for it? Yeah, that's fine. Or do we want to stay with that? Okay. So in the game, just to clarify it to show how different it is. In the game, Ellie and Joel meet Bill. Uh, they go they go to find him. Joel's known him in the past, um, but Ellie actually gets a chance to meet Bill. And Bill's this pretty much the bill we meet at the beginning of episode three and you hear about frank his partner again there's a hesitation there i feel like if you're queer you know that it that it's meant to be a queer partner but if you're not then it might slip past you um but frank's left bill he didn't want to be around him anymore and you think that's the end of the story that he's just going to be mentioned well you end up in a house and there's a dead body hanging from the ceiling and it's Frank mm. and Bill is devastated and but he tries to hide that with his gruff and grunginess and then as you're exploring the house Joel comes across a letter that is a suicide note from Frank to Bill if Bill ever found it and it is the most horrifying yeah. letter from an ex-lover to uh, an ex-lover that I've ever read and it basically says that Frank would rather be dead than spend another day with Bill. And um, he hopes that, you know, basically says, at least I, at least you're not going to get that car battery. At least I got to it first. And it's so vengeful and so hateful and it's heartbreaking. And that's what I was expecting <laughs> coming into this episode. I was hoping for maybe something a little bit better, not as horrifying and traumatic. Mm-hmm. But what we got instead of Bill's story being focused on hatred, which it is until the last second you meet him, it's focused instead on love. And the number one theme in The Last of Us is love. And it's many different manifestations and it, the toxicity of love, the, the beauty of love. And to change Bill's story to that was such a good choice. And I think, again, the benefit of perspective, yeah. because... Instead of seeing a traumatic queer love story, we got 
a beautiful, lifelong queer love story that we so rarely get to see in media. And that meant so much to me. And at the end of the day, I was like, I, I would give up Bill meeting Ellie a hundred times over if it meant we got this story again. Yeah. And I think that a lot of people, mostly outside the queer community that I've seen, mm-hmm. um, don't view it that way. Yeah. Because it's not something they've ever had to want. And um, there's a, you know, a, an ignorance there and, a, you know, not really seeing it for what it's meant to be. A, a version of love that is very hard to find yeah. now and even more so in the apocalypse. Yeah, yeah I'm like crying, honestly. Um, thinking about this, the hatred of that story after watching the episode, I, I can't imagine the Bill from the episode finding and reading that letter. It's just heartbreaking. Yeah. Yeah. Aaron, I'm glad you could jump in a little bit because I could not have spoken for a few moments there. And I, to me, there's so much about that episode I want to talk about, but I just want to start with what you're saying there about how rarely we get to see queer joy. You know, I grew up where some of the first, in the 80s and 90s, we first started to get a lot of gay characters. I mean, still very few, and they were never main characters. Uh, but, you know, on TV shows, and, and eventually you got, like, Will and Grace and stuff like that. But almost always, uh, someone was dying of HIV-AIDS. Uh, you know, the character was there because they were going to get beaten up in a kind of act of, uh, you know, homophobic or transphobic violence for our main character to be inspired by in some way. You know, and the stories was all, you know, it, to the point of it became a trope called Bury Your Gaze. And that, like, if you have a story about two gay people, especially if they fall in love, one of them has to die. And so to have this story where these two people fall in love and some people pushed back, said, oh, they're so toxic. They break each other's boundaries all the time. I think there's some truth to that. But I think part of it's about the struggle to find love and connection in an apocalypse. And that's why I think this episode ties in so well to the episode that comes after about how hard it is to let down your walls and have connection. And of course there's toxicness all over the place, but the fact that they build this beautiful little life together, two people from vastly different worldviews that they learn to see each other and to hear each other with some very real stumbles to be sure. And some real boundary breaking and to acknowledge, but that even with that, they find love and they find connection and that, they wind up living a full life where they the fact that they die in a way that has nothing to do with the zombies, that has nothing to do with the raiders, it's a little bit connected to the lack of medical care that maybe they could have stretched out their life. But as I clearly say, it's not something that would have been fixed, that would have been uh, cured. They bas- One of them dies of natural causes and the other gets to basically decide to commit euthanasia along with him. Uh, now I'm worked up again. It- <laughs> It was so beautiful to get to see that because to me, the message of that is that in the midst of this incredibly broken time that we're about to get a story of Joel and Ellie trying to see, can they build connections with each other that we start by seeing, yes, it is possible. And that it is two men having gay love for each other that can have this, um, you know, forgive me for the uh, genre switch here, but, you know, finding love in a hopeless place. That's literally what it is. Mm -hmm. And it was just, 
it was such a beautiful story. But I think also you're right, Danielle. If you're not queer, or if you're not connected to those communities, or or uh, you know friends or family with people in those communities, it's hard to understand why that mattered quite so much. Yeah, and that's why that's why I wrote the piece I did for Temple of Geek because when I watched it, like I said, I watched it a few days before it came out. I was so worried that people's biggest focus was going to be on. Bill not meeting Ellie and the lack of interaction there, because that is a really fun part of the game. Um, but, and I would have loved to see Bill Offerman's, or not Bill, Nick Offerman's <laughs> Bill meet uh, Bella Ramsey's Ellie. I think that would have been hilarious. I also think Frank would have loved Ellie. Yeah. Um, but I was so worried people were going to be so hung up on that that they would look past the beauty of this story. And some people were hung up on it, but the vast majority, I was so happy to see, were on board with it 100%. And I think that that really speaks to a couple things. One, the power of storytelling in this series mm-hmm. is just, I mean, the, the level of the level of it is astronomical. <laughs> like It's just done so well. The acting, every aspect of storytelling here is just done so well. And then also the fact that it's, it's 2023 now. And when that game was made, it was 2013. Or when it was published, it was 2013. And so much has changed. I'm, I'm a teacher uh, at university. And I think that that's the place where you people can really see the way that things have changed identity-wise. Mm-hmm. And especially for the queer community, because even though things aren't the way that they should be now, even compared to when I was in high school, when I was in university, people are so much more accepting in certain places than they were when I was that age. And I think it's easier for a story like this to come out now than it would have been in 2013. Not to say that there weren't stories like this in 2013, that there weren't actual lives living stories like this then, but for it to be as widely accepted is so beautiful to see and a real, I think, testament to the fact that these stories can change lives and can change society. Yeah, I mean, it's by no means the only definition of when gay rights happened or queer rights happened, Mm -hmm. but the Oberfell Supreme Court decision in the United States legalizing gay marriage That happened two years after this game came out. You know, I mean, that is how recent a lot of these changes have happened. That just made me realize, I mean, it hit me really hard. When they got married on Fred's last day. Oh, my God. (laughs) And looking back, when the world shut down for the pandemic, it was 2003, and that wouldn't have been okay. Gay marriage wasn't legalized. And the fact that they got to have a private ceremony and be married on their last day together is just so beautiful. Yeah. And even just stepping away from from that part of it, that last day story meant so much to me. Uh, And I'm going to get into some very serious subjects here. And so trigger warning for people making decisions similar to what they decided in the show. Um, My mother... um, died of cancer about uh, seven years ago now, eight years ago. We knew she could use chemo, she could use all of these things to extend her life as long as possible in a way that was not going to be pleasant for her, or she could just enjoy the last couple months of her life eating and smoking and drinking and having time with her family the way she wanted. And that was hard for us, but I think the decision of her getting to go out on her own terms was one that 
was really important to me and one that I've continued to support. And when I've been adjacent to other families where I think especially this happened a lot during the pandemic. And again, here I'm going to be touching on some very sensitive stuff. But, you know, I think there were families where I knew older people who were saying, I don't want to live however long this pandemic is going in total isolation. I'm okay taking those chances so that I can be with my people and be with my family. And I'm not judging how anyone else handled those things. But to see that kind of discussion happen in this, um, in the show, and to come to the conclusion that they did of, especially because each character clearly says, I love you. I, I want you to be a part of my life, but I have made a decision regarding my death that you do not get to have any control over. And, and Frank does it and Bill is heartbroken. And then when Bill does the same thing, you can tell Frank's upset. And he says that beautiful thing about, I'm upset, I didn't want this, but it's also incredibly romantic. But to me, that was also Frank saying, you have the exact same rights that I do. I get to decide when my time is up and you get to decide when your time is up. And it was just, it, it, it was so beautiful about an issue that is so rarely discussed in those kind of terms. Yeah, I agree. I think that it was the the beauty of, of having a choice yeah. of getting, like you said, getting to go out on your own terms. And the fact that they didn't die from this apocalypse, they died of natural causes, essentially. They made the choice to go out the way they wanted to. And that's not something that often happens in real, like outside of the apocalypse, yeah. let alone inside it. And I think the line that broke me that I like, audibly like was sobbing and wailing over was when Frank said, um, then love me the way I want you to, because outside of this being a queer love story, it's just a love story. Mm -hmm. And that I feel like can be that many people, not even just in the queer community can relate to because love is such a, I always say this love is a profoundly selfish and selfless thing. And it shouldn't, be able to work the way it does because of that necessity. And it's so difficult to ask someone or to trust someone to love you the way that you need them to. And it's an, that like in some ways it might be selfish to ask of that, but it's also selfless to give that. And the way that that works is that balance is giving the love that that person needs and knowing that they're going to also give you the love that you need. Yeah. And I felt that that was portrayed so well in this episode that we got to see throughout their lives that, you know, when Bill needed to give a little to make Frank happy, he did. When Frank needed to give a little to make Bill happy, he did. And that that's what love is, compromises and coming together and still staying true to yourself, but also acknowledging that this person is important enough to you that you were willing to live maybe a little differently than you would otherwise. And I just thought that was so beautiful. And it's a great message and a great counter to the type of love that maybe we'll see throughout the rest of the series and, or not counter, but just like, you know, love isn't the same across groups of people and it manifests in different ways. And I think it's nice to have those examples Mm -hmm. of what love can look like. When what you said also, again, I'm just so struck by the brilliance of the writing and how it all ties together. 
because earlier we were talking about how you know part of Joel part of what Joel goes through with Ellie in episode four you know he had told her don't have a gun don't have a gun and his acceptance of her part of it is like he realizes she lied to him she stole a gun she did all these things he told her not to do and he has to accept that and instead as you said so powerfully he's the one to apologize to her they set up the connection that Bill understands that Bill and Joel are very similar and I think part of what the the love me the way I want you to for me that's a very powerful thing as as the person who's more the person being taken care of to say to the protector to say to the person caring mm. because it's also saying I know you want to keep me safe I know you want to protect me but loving me has to be willing to take chances. It has to be willing to lose me. It has to be willing to love me in the way I want to be loved, not the way you want to protect me. And yeah. I can never really make the connection, but I think that's what Joel is learning, is that to care for Ellie and to protect her means to, I don't think they're ready for the word love, but, but that basically is what it is. It's learning to care for her and to relate to her the way she wants, not just the way he wants, where in that in that because I think to a large extent is that he doesn't want another Sarah and he doesn't want to lose yeah. her again. And that's, yeah, it, it all ties together so well. Yeah. Yeah. I think especially cause he's asking Ellie to do a lot and he's not really until I think episode four given much to her except for protection. Mm -hmm. And I think that what we see a lot, especially with him finally caving and laughing at the puns yeah. is that he realizes that that can't continue like he has to give a little too. Yeah. And that was a really beautiful thing to see. Yeah, for me, the um, scene with the puns and like the sleeping bags just reminded me of like a sleepover when I was a kid, you know, and it's like dark and you and your friends are all tucked away and it's now one person starts laughing and then the <laughs> other person starts laughing. It's, go to bed, go to bed. No, you go to bed. And... <laughs> I just thought it was a really beautiful moment of connection mm -hmm. between the two of them. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, the fact that Joel finally laughs at her joke, and he's starting to crack a little bit, and, you know, he guesses it. She goes, oh, you dick. And they have that little fight, and, and they go to sleep, I think, feeling a little safer mm -hmm. with one another. Yeah, it... Watching it with my partner and then telling my other partner about it, I mean, I, I have in my dating profiles, like, you must love bad puns as a form of love language. <laughs> and, and, like, you know, my partner Mary will often groan at the bad puns. And we realize, like, that's that's the sign of appreciation. But maybe one out of every fifth, out of every, like, five, maybe one out of every, like, five or ten times, I'll get her to laugh. And it's just such this happy moment. And, like, so ha seeing that moment for Joel, it just, I connected with it so well and it was just so good um, the one other thing I want to say about that episode and we can talk about uh, some of the other stuff but I think we, we've hit a lot of the stuff I wanted to cover though there were two episodes before episode three so they, they deserve a mention or two somewhere um, the fact that Ron Swanson forgive me Nick Offerman but basically I mean he was playing Ron Swanson in the apocalypse you know it was such a similar character and that character, as played by Nick Offerman, was so much the symbol of libertarian, masculine manhood in manly, manly ways. You know, I eat only meat and I have all my guns and I, I have a permit that says I can do what I want. It says I can do what I want. And yes, that character is meant to be a parody of that kind of masculinity, but also became kind of an icon of it in many ways. 
nine times out of ten, I'm going to say I want a gay character played by a gay actor. I can't say how much it meant to me that it was Nick Offerman playing that part. And for me, there's a double sense of it because uh, I am a Gleek. I've revealed this terrible secret about myself uh, on other podcasts. <laughs> and earlier in the day, the Sunday that I watched the episode, I was listening to a podcast about Glee where Chris Coulter, the actor who played Kurt Hummel, uh, who is famously gay in the show, uh, was talking. And his actor, the actor, Chris himself, is also gay. And he got outed against his permission uh, in the course of the show. And he talked about how how much his publicists and his agents and everyone around him had been telling him, don't you ever get seen like wearing something or kissing another man, like in his private life, if people know that you as an actor are gay, you'll never get cast again. And and Chris is an actor who I think he himself said this, like, you got to kind of work hard to think he could be straight. Like, I mean, anyone can be, it's not just stereotypes, but he's not, it's not a huge leap to guess that he is. And so for that to have happened literally only like 15, 16 years ago, and then now Nick Offerman, this gay, this, you know, super masculine, masculine man, play this part where it's not just that, like, I've seen other straight actors play parts like this where there's one chaste kiss on the lips, but mostly there's not, there was... I mean, the scenes were hot. The love scenes were incredibly erotic. He had a shirt off for a lot of it. There was a lot of eroticism in them. And a lot of, like, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't like, you know, there's one clear masculine and then one, like, who's the top, who's the bottom? They were both, you know, they were both bears, which I love. I'm a bear type myself. I, I can't say how much that meant. Just that Nick Offerman would play this role and that it would be in this show. Um, it, it just... I talk about The Wire every now and then, and Omar Little, who's like a gangster who steals money from other drug dealers and is also gay, was a revolutionary figure because The Wire, a show about cops and criminals, is not where you expect to have a gay main character. And I kind of feel the same about this. Like the fact that it's not a show on Bravo that's going to have a lot of queer content, which I love those shows, but the fact that it's Nick Offerman in a zombie show, I, I just can't put into words how much that meant. Yeah, I think that it's something that is sorely needed because you have people who maybe otherwise wouldn't be so on board Mm -hmm. with this story, but who, I mean, I don't know how you could be a fan of Nick Offerman and then not be on board with a story like this because he's very publicly an ally, Um, but... Maybe people watching it who might be a little more of the typical, you know, Bill we see at the beginning of the episode themselves and might relate to him in many ways, um, forced to think about if they can relate to him in this way and forced to, you know, that doesn't mean that you have to be gay, but can you be emotional? Can you open yourself up to someone? And that is a way you can relate to someone. You don't have to be exactly like them. I think a lot of times, sometimes... Um, toxic masculinity in our society has encouraged, you know, straight men, straight cis men to think that they can't relate to gay men um, because that makes them gay. And, but the human connection goes so much deeper than that. And I think that I hope that this is something that showed that to these people who might think that way. And I've seen comments, um, of people who have, you know, Southern, uh, conservative parents who are watching the show, but 
who actually were crying at the end of that episode because they could relate to Bill's choices. Like these men can relate to Bill's choices, Bill wanting to protect Frank, Bill at the end choosing to go with him instead of, because that was his purpose and instead of living without his purpose. And I think that that is such an important part of storytelling. And like I said, I, I hope, I hope that it changes things, even if it's just little things in people's minds that make them think differently about this. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm with you there, especially even putting aside anything about the, the fact that the partner Bill is with is male. I've done like counseling work and like sex ed work with with, with younger boys. I've done counseling work and sex ed work with, with young men. And one of the things that I often hear talked about is that all media, when it shows just two heterosexual people or, uh, you know, a man and a woman who are going to have their first sexual encounter, generally it's as they're teenagers or young adults, the woman is nervous. The woman has all these feelings of vulnerability and fear and stuff like that. And the man is like, cool, I'm about to get laid. And that's that's what it is. Yeah. And I would talk to young men who had a lot of feelings of nervousness and vulnerability around their first sexual experience, either that it happened or that it was going to happen. And it felt like it had never been seen. And so they say that Bill has one time been with a woman, but I think it's, it's pretty clear that like this is his first time in many, many ways. The amount of vulnerability that he showed as Frank is sort of approaching him on the bed where he's not, I never doubted that he was consenting, but I saw that nervousness and that vulnerability. I have never seen that from a man about a first sexual encounter. And that alone was just... I'm getting so worked up because of how much that meant to me. Yeah. So since I was kind of speed watching these episodes, I was trying to fit it in during my 12 hour workday yesterday. So I was sitting there in the break room eating my lunch and it was the scene of uh, Frank and Bill kissing for the first time and being intimate in the bed. And my friend walks in and she kind of looks over my shoulder. She's like, oh, what are you watching? I was like, oh, I'm just watching Nick Offerman falling in love of a gay relationship. And she was like, oh, cool. It was the scene where Frank was kissing down Bill's chest. And she was like, does he want that? And I was like, yes, yes. It's his first time other than with a girl a long time ago. But yeah. yes. And she was like, oh, OK. He looked kind of fearful. And I think that what you said is very true. We don't see that kind of vulnerability in men, especially for big, Mm -hmm. quote-unquote, manly men like Bill, like Nick Offerman. And I think that it was very important to see on screen. So I know there's some zombies that appear somewhere in this show, and we should probably talk about them at least a little bit. Um, I mean, I will say that the zombie genre has never really appealed to me that much. And part of what I love about the show is so far, at least it really feels like a show about what people do in post-apocalyptic settings where the zombies are just the MacGuffin to get us to a post-apocalyptic setting. But obviously there are zombies and that's an important genre. And, and they're doing this really interesting take on them with the whole idea of it being a fungus and the, and the connectivity and that we're not doing the classic, like, you die and then come back as a zombie. Like, these people are not undead in that traditional way. Um, for both of you, like, kind of talk more about that side of the story as sort of how do you feel about this as a zombie story and the way they're using that as, as moving the, the thing that moves the plot? I, I've never really been into zombie or, like, apocalypse stuff. It just never really grabbed me in the past. 
It all felt like just swarms of zombies that moved so slow, but no matter how fast you run, they're always going to catch you. But this idea that it's a fungus, it's an intelligence, and it grows, and it wants to consume the earth and consume the population, they are slow moving, but they're incredibly dangerous. Because one bite, one piece of infection, and you have 15 hours maximum until you're one of them, and you're trapped inside your brain with this fungus controlling you. And I don't know exactly what was happening with Tess when she turned and he was putting that thing in her mouth, but my understanding is he was kind of planting like a hive mind into her. And then they all blew up, so it didn't matter. But I just thought it was a new and interesting take on like zombies or infected that I just haven't seen before. Um, yeah, going off of that about Tess's scene, her death scene, um, so... I was really intrigued by that. And they talked about this in their podcast. Um, Craig Mazin and Nick Druckmann talked about it in the official Last of Us podcast about how they really wanted to play around with the idea of why a fungus zombie was different than an undead zombie. Or, like, you know, can is that contradictive? But, um, and the idea is that the fungus has a, a purpose, if you will, and that's to spread as far as possible. Yeah. Whereas, you know, the undead don't really have a purpose just to eat flesh. Um, and in the games, kind of the, the fungus part of it is kind of taken away a little bit. It's not as uh, prominent as it is in the show. And so it does seem like in the game, like they just want to eat the flesh, they, that they don't really care about spreading anything. But in the show, they're primary objective or purpose is, is to spread as far as possible, to implant this in as many people as possible. So if that's the purpose, would you be aggressive 100% of the time? Or would it just be when people resisted? Mm. And so Craig Mazin and Neil Druckmann wanted to see what it looked like when someone didn't resist. And that was that it was very uh, not brutal. It was disgusting, <laughs> but not um, not fierce. And I thought that that was really interesting to, to think about because... The fungus is is different, and it is there is a, a type of intelligence to it. I think mm -hmm. lots of people have talked about fungi and you know plants about their own type of intelligence that they have, and to see how that can manifest through a body that isn't dead, that is still very much alive, is very interesting and terrifying. Because I would rather be undead than still alive. Yeah. And have and be treated as a puppet, and that that's what these that's what these uh, infected are. They're still somewhere in their brain, just not able to control their bodies anymore. The fungus is doing that for them, yeah. and I think that that is just like absolutely terrifying and a really interesting way to tell a story like this. It really is, in part, first of all, because it cuts off any degree of mysticism. That has to do with zombies. And like, um, I think this is just a kind of trend that's been going is that we're getting further and further away from there kind of being something mystical or magical about zombies, in part, which is good because a lot of the original stuff kind of has some really like racist ideas about like Voodoo and kind of Caribbean uh, mystical cultures and things like that. But also just like it's getting more to the, um, the idea of being something natural in a way, which I really appreciate. But I also love because of the metaphor that that is. Like, I mean, think about the way you were talking about fungus. And now if you think back to the original Matrix movie and Agent Smith de 
he basically describes humanity in that exact same way. He calls them a virus, not a fungus. But that same thing of just like the need for growth at all costs and just subsuming everything it comes into contact with. I mean, that's kind of humanity, too. And there's also a great metaphor there of, you know, in terms of international supply chains and our food and like the fact, the idea that it gets into the food and that's then just so basic that it gets everywhere. Um, Danielle, you recently put out a great video about this, about how it could be on TikTok, about how it could be that it's it's able to withstand cooking. But even that, there's so many ways in which we consume flour that hasn't been cooked, whether it's cookie dough, although you came from my cookie dough, which I was not okay with. But also, just, you know, like every time I bake bread, I spread raw flour on there to, you know, just be able to, you know, to be able to work with the dough and things like that. And yeah, it's. I grew up with vampires. I know there's all sorts of generational or political debates about vampires for zombies. And to me, I'm, I'm much more interested in vampires. But if you're going to give me a zombie story, I feel like this is the perfect way to do it because you're doing a very interesting twist on it. And for the most part, the story's not really about zombies. It's about the apocalypse. Yeah. Yeah. I, I tweeted a couple weeks ago because when the first episode came out, I saw a lot of people saying, oh, you know, if it wasn't for Pedro Pascal being in this uh I wouldn't watch it because I'm just tired of another zombie story. And I was like, oh, it's it's so much more than that. And I don't expect people who haven't played the game to understand that. But I, I was trying to get across that, like, in my mind, it's different even than The Walking Dead. Like, it uses zombies as a background, a foundation to tell the story. And technically, they're not even really zombies, I right. guess. It depends on how you want to define zombies. But they that's just the foundation. That's just the, you know, the, the setting of this. It is so much more about human connection. And I meant that in the way that, like, that is more the focus than it usually is in uh, in zombie stories and yeah. undead stories, whatever. Um in, in such a different way, like, I don't, I don't really know how to explain it. And I think that came across in the tweet because I'm aware that zombies and vampires are metaphors for, are largely metaphors for the human condition right. for, you know, humanity and society. And that none of these stories is really about the monster. It's about the people. And I get that, but I also feel like sometimes creators don't dive into that in more than a metaphorical sense, yeah. if that makes sense. And my point is that The Last of Us does. It dives into it in a way that's not really a metaphor. It does have metaphors for it, but it, it separates itself from that a mm. bit. And um, I think that's what makes it so special is that, yeah, you have these these creatures that you have to kill and that you have to you don't want to get infected. That is a risk, but it's just another risk among many. And like that's become a natural part of it. And to me, it's different than things like The Walking Dead and Warm Bodies and, you know, all the other mm. zombie media out there. Warm Bodies uh, being, I think, the best Romeo and Juliet, Juliet adaptation that's ever been. <laughs> and but that's all of the story. <laughs> I'm just going to say I've never been so happy to be gluten free. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't think they're infecting almond flour, you know what I mean? <laughs> I appreciate that. I appreciate that perspective. Any other kind of last comments for me to use? We wrap up. Um, oh, I guess just one thing, really quickly. Uh, we didn't talk a lot about Tess, but I do want mm -hmm. to like give that character a shout out, especially in the show, because they uh, went into so much more depth with her character in the show than they do in the game, and they really made her in the short time that she was there a female role model for Ellie mm -hmm. in 
even though they had a few conversations, the conversations they did have were Tess trying to impart some wisdom on Ellie and try to make sure that she stays alive and that she knows that just because she's immor- just, just because she's immune doesn't mean that she's immortal. And there are other ways for her to die in this society. And it's such an important lesson for Ellie. And to have it be Tess who teaches her that I think is really important because there's so few female role models for her. Mm. And I loved that. I also thought that her death scene was a lot, a lot more hard hitting than it was in the game. Oh my God. I didn't think she was going to be able to light it. Like she was flicking it. And I was like, you couldn't test this before. I was like, no, why wouldn't you ask Joel for his lighter? Just in case. Come on. I, I, I heard this idea once that the Zippo lighter company was going to come up with some kind of lawsuit because like as someone who used to smoke i was a goth i smoked clove cigarettes um still miss them but god they're terrible for you um (laughs) and i can tell you like the whole point of zippos is they're much more reliable than your average just like you know two-door lighter and so the fact that in every movie that a zippo has ever been pulled out either it's to show that someone is sexy because they can use it but most of the time it's to build dramatic tension around it won't light like the Zippo company has reason for a lawsuit is all I'm going to say. Um, <laughs> but more seriously, though, and I guess this would be my wrap-up comment. It's funny that the three of us just recorded on Star Wars and are now doing this because part of what you were really reminding me of, Danielle, is that – or both of you – this is fundamentally a story about finding hope. And uh, and in a lot of ways, there's kind of some weird parallels with like, you know, Ellie is kind of like the rebel plans. You know, it's the like you know, the, the, the Death Star plans. It's the thing mm-hmm. that can give us hope. And – it again to me is why I think it's so important that we have the Bill and Frank story because I think there's something to be said for you are in this horrible situation and so your job is to fight the situation and to make the situation better and to have hope that everything can change. And I think that's a very important story. And I think that's clearly what we're going to get with the rest of this show, I assume. Uh, No spoilers, please, but I've seen a Hollywood story. I have some ideas, although clearly it's not going to be exactly what I expect. But Bill and Frank give you something very different. And they're kind of like the top from Clone Wars of that. It's like because Bill gives up on any possibility that he can work with people like Joel or like I don't think he knows that Ellie exists, but he gives up on the idea that his role is to help everybody. Him and Frank are just like, we're not here to help everybody. We're here to create this little corner of stability and sanity and and to me i love that 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 the show is saying there is hope for that and there's both these kinds of hope there's the hope that you can be part of the movement to fix everything but also there's just the hope that you can survive and you can find love and you can manage to get through and in a world where so many of us are burning out because we feel like we have to constantly be fighting everything i think there's something beautiful in holding up both of those as as equal equally valid ways to find hope I think it's kind of like how it's so important to have shows like Andor in Star Wars, mm-hmm. but that gets so heavy and so yeah. traumatizing <laughs> that it's also a necessity to have shows like The Bad Batch and Rebels that are still very emotional and still very meaningful, but approach the topic in a way that is a little bit easier on your soul. And you need that balance yeah. of it. You can't just have, like, one or the other. I love the TV show The Boys, but I think part of why I like it is there's nothing else in The Boys universe, but 
every, so much of this of the superhero universe is hope and is goodness and is optimism. The, yeah, to me, the boys is Andor. It's so dark and it's so and they're going for more and more gross out, which I hate. But that's a whole other story. But but yeah, it's the same kind of thing of like Andor. The boys they work because they're a counterpoint to everything else that's out there. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you both so much for being a part of this. Um, for people who want to hear more of you, A, you should check out Star Wars Universe podcast because I just did some great content with both of them on uh, The Bad Batch. But for people who aren't Star Wars people or just want to hear from other things, uh, starting with you, Danielle, you've talked some about the other places people can find you. Uh, give us just the rundown. Where do they find your content on uh, The Last of Us, on Star Wars, on all the great things you talk about? Uh, so I'm on TikTok at Written in the Star Wars. I'm on Instagram at Written in the SW and Twitter, DannyS394. I also occasionally write some articles for The Last of Us and The Bad Batch on Temple of Geek. Awesome. Yeah, and all those notes, all those links will be in the show notes. Uh, and for Aaron, you're doing all this great stuff with cosplay and learning about that. Where can people find your content? Yeah, so my handle is Lady period Tano period Creates. And that's on TikTok and Instagram. Mostly right now, I'm posting just a lot of cosplay, work in progress stuff, a few events I've been to, and some other stuff about the podcast. But after watching this show and watching the new Avatar movie, The Way of Water, they've both really grabbed me. And I'm thinking, I think it's start. It's time to expand my platform. Yeah and start talking about some other stuff. I love it. Well, thank you both so much. Uh, for our patrons, we're going to have a little bit of bonus content. We've been recording a while, so it's going to be pretty darn short. Uh, but we will have a little bit. But for everyone else, of course, please think about supporting the show through the podcast, through the Patreon. Uh, you can find it all on our uh, show notes or on the website, The Ethical Panda. But if you also just go to patreon.com, The Ethical Panda, you'll find it. You get access to our bonus content. Mostly you just help keep the show going. We'd love to hear your feedback. What do you think of the show? As I said, we're going to do more episodes on it. Professor Matthew Capel, he's going to come on and talk about the folklore uh, and history of zombies and all the different, like there's a whole political theory I hadn't realized that about, about zombies versus vampires and different ideas about like, uh, you know, one being pre or one being post HIV world. You know, there's so much stuff we're going to talk about. We'll probably definitely have other people back on. Check out all that. Give us feedback. Theethicalpanda.com, patreon.com, all the great links these two have. And most importantly, have a great day. <laughs>